lovely to see all of you. We gather together in the Lord's name today. We are the ecclesia, the gathering, the assembly, the church of Jesus Christ. And that is our topic for today, the beautiful bride of Christ. That's our focus here in 1 Timothy chapter 1 that we've been in for a number of weeks now, a couple of months actually. And all we've been doing is outlining the elements of our preparation as the church. And what are we preparing for? Well, we're preparing for the marriage supper of the Lamb. We're preparing to meet the Lord Jesus Christ in person. And I don't know if you take time to think about that, but that's actually going to happen. And if you know Christ, there will be a marriage supper of the Lamb. And so how do we prepare for that as the church? Well, so far in our preparation in 1 Timothy 1, we've seen we prepare with New Testament preaching, with effective disciples, with Christ-honoring people, with loving instruction, with spiritual protection, with Old Testament preaching, with holiness declaration. Last week, we looked at gospel thankfulness. And today, I'd like to look at the element of preparation of steadfast ministry. Steadfast ministry. Now, really, the text we're looking at today, which is chapter 1, verse 18, and the first part of verse 19, this is really aimed at the shepherds of the church. It's aimed at Timothy in particular, but the applications are generally to any of the shepherds of the local church. And that application, very simply, is steadfast ministry. Steadfast ministry in the local church can't happen without steadfast ministers, the shepherds. And this short text really emphasizes this. And in just a few words, it's going to lay it on thick for us. And so let's just read the text together and then we'll get into it and take it apart. First Timothy 1 verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. And that's as far as we'll go this morning. Every century has had its standout preachers, its standout pastors, those who really defined the stand for the biblical gospel in that generation. It's happened every century. God raises up one, two, or three men that many thousands of others then can look to as a model. He's been doing this since the time of Paul and Peter. In the 13th century, we had Peter Waldo of Lyon, France. He was preaching the gospel despite Roman Catholic dominance of the church. In the 14th century, we saw John Wycliffe translating the New Testament into English for the very first time to his great peril and preaching the gospel of salvation by grace alone. In the 15th century, we had Savonarola, an Italian reformer who denounced the papacy, denounced the Pope right in the Pope's hometown and the heresy of Roman Catholicism. And he was preaching to giant crowds and calling for repentance, for conversion to Christ by faith alone. And he was hanged and burned by the Catholic religious authorities because of his stand. In the 16th century, we saw John Calvin, Martin Luther, John Knox, other great reformers, but those three in particular stand out as the great preachers of the Reformation. In the 17th century, we had John Bunyan, Puritan pastor, author of Pilgrim's Progress, the most published book other than the Bible in all of publishing history. We had Richard Baxter, many other Puritan preachers, the likes of which we've really never seen since. The 18th century, we had Jonathan Edwards, John Wesley, and George Whitfield, great gospel preachers who collectively preached around the world to tens of millions of souls. The 19th century had one of my favorites, the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, He preached to more people than anyone in human history to that point and still today is the most published Christian author of all time. The early 20th 20th century had the doctor, Dr. David Martin Lloyd-Jones, a physician who became a preacher and he revitalized the practice of verse-by-verse expository preaching. In fact, his preaching style has been characterized as logic on fire. His ministry at Westminster Chapel of London ended in 1968. A few months later, in February of 1969, 
John MacArthur took the pulpit at Grace Community Church of Sun Valley, now 20 years into the 21st century as well. Just to give you perspective, he's preaching this morning, and he started there when I was 18 months old. That's faithfulness, and maybe some vitamins, I'm not sure. When John MacArthur first came, he stipulated to the chairman of the elder board, Bert Michelson, that he needed to study at least 30 hours a week. He needed to study the Bible. This was a foreign concept to them. And he said, all right, if that's what you have to do, that's odd. We don't understand that. But if that's what you want to do, then do it. John's very first sermon was from Matthew chapter 7. It was called, How to Play Church. And he called the church to true salvation, not just self-deceived false religion. Several families left the church that week, and one of the elders was exposed as an unbeliever due to his first sermon. From that time forward, the the Lord seems to have used John not only to shepherd his own church, but to be at the forefront of some of the greatest spiritual battles of our time. In the 1970s, John's exposition of 1 Corinthians 5 turned a spotlight on the subject of the purity of the church and church discipline. That the evangelistic of the church, the evangelistic witness of the church can't move forward if it's not authenticated by the holy lives of the church members. Church discipline was all but unknown in the American church at this time, but as the church began preaching holiness and the Grace Community Church actively confronting sins such as adultery, God began to honor their efforts And now countless other churches have been emboldened to purify their bodies as well, including ours. In the late 1970s, John preached a series in Matthew on the Sermon on the Mount. After a decade of ministry, he took a three-month sabbatical with his family, traveling the country for a much-needed rest. But when he returned in mid-September of that year, he was surprised to find that one of the messages in the series in the Sermon on the Mount, which he had entitled, Which Way to Heaven?, was not only being used to bring false believers to faith in Christ in their own church, but now, to this day, has been used to bring many thousands to faith in Christ. That experience opened the door for the very small beginning of his radio ministry, Grace to You. And it also opened the door from his study of Matthew to begin a work called The Gospel According to Jesus. In the 1980s, John's study of Matthew led to this painstaking work, which took him four years to write. It was a landmark book, and it struck a massive blow to the theology of easy grace, of free grace, which says that you can come to faith in Christ, but you don't have to show any fruit, that you can live the same way that you've always lived, and you're still a Christian. Well, the gospel according to Jesus put a nail in that. The book essentially taught from Scripture that the current presentation of the gospel is found in almost every church had been watered down to simply, do you want to accept Jesus, which is not found in Scripture, by the way, instead of exhorting sinners to repent, to turn away from their lifestyle of of degradation and sin, and to have genuine life-altering faith. His critics named this teaching Lordship Salvation. We just call it Salvation now. And they misrepresented John badly, which is still happening. But as a result of the gospel according to Jesus, thousands of churches, thousands of pastors have now reaffirmed the biblical gospel of salvation by grace through faith, which is demonstrated in repentance. In fact, in the 80s and 90s, when John was traveling around the world preaching, he brought boxes of copies of the gospel according to Jesus and gave them to every pastor and changed churches around the world. In the late 1970s, all the way into the early 90s, John published several books on the doctrinal errors of the charismatic movement. He took on the greatest single heresy of our time. This has led to countless thousands of charismatics hearing the true biblical gospel and being extricated from unbiblical and even heretical ministry, which denigrates and blasphemes the Holy Spirit. In January of 1979, while preaching through the book of Titus, John preached Titus 2, 4, and 5, which encourages young women to love their children, to be pure, to be workers at home. Well, the Los Angeles Times, a few days later, published a smear piece, a scathing article called, A Woman's Place is at Home, condemning that sermon and falsely claiming, by the way, that a half dozen women employees at Grace Community Church had been fired. That's not what happened. What happened was that those women heard the sermon and they resigned so that they could go home to be with their families. 
His sermons on the home were so controversial that every week for a period of time, reporters from different newspapers and news outlets were showing up to see what he was going to preach this week. But the effect has been that since that time, countless pastors have had the courage of their convictions to preach the Bible and to insist on obedience and let the chips fall when it comes to the Christian family. John was also involved in a legal battle for First Amendment rights, which went all the way to the California Supreme Court and won in that court. And I'm going to assert that John MacArthur has been the single most influential and effective minister of the gospel for 100 years. And I can prove this. John's vision for a seminary to train men for pastoral ministry was realized in 1986 at the start of the Master's Seminary. And the Master's Seminary is unique among seminaries because it doesn't strive to do really anything except train preachers. That's all it's for. 35 years later, the Master's Seminary has graduated 1,800 men. I wear my Master's Seminary pin every time I preach. It's not a good luck charm. It's a reminder of the men who stand on my shoulders and said, you better get it right or I will come after you. Many of those 1,800 men, and here's where the expansion begins, many of those 1,800 men have staffed now the training centers of the international arm of the Master's Seminary called the Master's Academy International. Those Master's Seminary graduates Now, all over the world in Master's Academy International Schools, they've reached a point where they've trained up indigenous men that are now 70% of the faculty of those missionaries in foreign lands, of those uh, faculty in foreign lands. And now, 17 schools operating 70, 70 training centers in Albania, Croatia, the Czech Republic, Germany, Honduras, India, Italy, Japan, Malawi, Mexico, an undisclosed location in the Middle East, Philippines, Russia, South Africa, Spain, the Ukraine. Currently today, around the world, there are over 2,000 students currently enrolled to become pastors. 6,000 graduates from the Master's Academy International are pastoring in over 80 countries. That is almost half the earth. And on top of all that, grace to you. Airs John's sermons a thousand times a day in English, another thousand times a day in Spanish, in 27 Spanish-speaking countries. On top of that, John is one of the most prolific authors in Christian history and has literally changed the landscape of the Church of Jesus Christ. And where did all that come from? John himself said this, quote, When I started ministry, I committed myself to expository preaching. Just explaining the Bible. Because I knew there was nothing I could say that was nearly as important as what God had to say. And listen, John is not just a once-in-a-generation student of scriptures and natural leader. He is an extraordinary thinker. He is extremely well-read. He also has an uncanny ability to cut through the baloney to the truth. But despite all those accomplishments, which, by the way, are very surprising to John as well, all he wanted to do was preach the word. The most remarkable thing about him, the most remarkable thing about him is something that very, very few ministers of the gospel with his level of public exposure can ever say. Very few can ever say this. And that is that he's never wavered from a high view of God. He's never wavered from a high view of scripture. He's never wavered from a high view of the church. And he's never wavered from a high view of the ministry of the gospel itself. Because as the leadership of the church goes, so the church goes. And when the church views the gospel ministry as it often does today, that pastors are entertainers, they're motivators, or social directors, or perhaps worst of all, administrators, then the church's view of all things spirals down, down, down. But when the church views the gospel ministry as heavy and weighty in terms that this text here does, And then we're going to see now the church's view of all things is elevated, it's clarified, it's heightened. Let me put it to you this way. There are some young men in this room and some young men watching online right now. This charge that Paul gives Timothy should make any young man looking to the gospel ministry think twice before heading in a direction that is the most serious, weighty office on earth and 
This text should make any church think twice about desiring anything other than this somber, serious view of church leadership. In my experience, the true people of God crave leadership. They crave leaders who will expend their lives, expend their hearts to shepherd the flock of God, to love God's people at all costs. And so, for all of us, by having a proper view of the gospel ministry, the church has a proper view of itself and is all the more determined to be steadfast in the ministry of the gospel and the calling of the church to proclaim Christ and to shepherd his people. And so, if having a proper view of the gospel ministry, the church then has a proper view of itself and thereby is more steadfast in ministry, then it's worth our time to have Paul's weighty and challenging words explain to us some of the elements of the gospel ministry. And I'd like to do that in our text, and we're going to stay very, very close to the text this morning. We'll do four elements of the gospel ministry, because if you understand the gospel ministry, you understand the seriousness and the gravity of the church of Jesus Christ. We are not like Walmart. We are not like Costco. We are not like bars. We are not like gyms. We are not like restaurants. We are in the category all ourselves. And this will help us reclaim that. First element of the gospel ministry. The gospel ministry is a mandate. It is a mandate. Paul refers to Timothy as my child. Not only is he Paul's child in the faith, having been discipled by Paul, but there's a fatherly pride here that Timothy is following in Paul's footsteps that Timothy is receiving the baton, so to speak, of the ministry from the great Apostle Paul himself. But Paul here speaks of this charge, parangelion. It's a helpful word, helpful translation here, this charge. But we can expand that. It means instruction. It means a command. It means an exhortation. But it also carries the heavy weight of mission, of an objective, of an assignment. It's not a suggestion. It's the farthest thing from a suggestion. If a suggestion is over here, parangelion is over here. Now, what is this charge? It's primarily referring back to the original charge, the original command, all the way back in verse 3. Paul told Timothy, who is his representative at the church of Ephesus, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. And we've been through that in detail, what he's doing there in the church. Timothy was meant to feel the weight of the charge. This was not something added to his life. This was his life. There was nothing else for him. This was his existence. I talked to a pastor friend of mine the other day, and he likes to woodwork like I do. And and I said, what do you think about when you're woodworking? He said, A, not cutting my fingers off, and B, the ministry. And he said, the ministry is my job, it's my career, it's my calling, it's my hobby, it's what I think about all day long, all the time. And this is what Paul is telling Timothy. Timothy didn't clock out. He didn't take long weekends. He didn't pastor out of a mild love for the church. He didn't think it was a nice little thing to add into his life. Leading the church wasn't a career choice. It carried the weight of eternity with it. It carried the gravity of life and death. The certainty of some failures and pains and anguish certainly was there. But the full weight of heaven was now behind the proclamation of the truth as well. Now, we should take a note here that this charge to Timothy is very specific to his situation. And what is his situation? Well, his situation is a man who has given up any other life for the sake of the church. The full-time minister of the gospel. Now, let me explain. Paul uses this warfare metaphor here, and the obvious cross-reference that we all think of is another time when Paul uses this metaphor with Timothy. In 2 Timothy 2, 3, and 4, Paul says to Timothy, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. In other words, this charge, this call is not a general call to any leader in the church. This is a call on the men who have given up any other life for the sake of the ministry, who is not entangled in civilian pursuits, but devoted to the church alone. Uh, For example, right here in this book, this also fits with the distinction made in 1 Timothy 5, that there are elders who rule well, and then there are those who rule and work hard at preaching and teaching, and they're to be fully 
supported financially by the church because they've given up any other life for the sake of the ministry. So there's a clear distinction. The same distinction is found in Revelation 2 and 3 when the Lord Jesus addresses the seven churches of Asia Minor in Revelation 2 and 3. He opens each evaluation of the churches with an interesting greeting. He says, to the angel of the church at Ephesus, to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Now, why is Jesus writing a letter to angels? Well, he's not. He's writing letters to human leaders, each one representing the church, a leader among the leaders. This is very clear for several reasons. First of all, in both Testaments, old and new, angel is often used of a human messenger. Angels are used of Jesus' disciples, John's disciples, Joshua's Jericho scouts, John the Baptist. They're spoken of as angels, messengers. Another reason this is a human leader, these are real letters written to real churches with real issues. How precisely would the Apostle John send his letter to the angel? There wouldn't be a way to do that. Another reason is that these messengers are rebuked, they're commended. The rebukes involve sin in the church and the failure of some of these shepherds. This is definitely a human problem. And we would also point out that heavenly angels don't rule the church, they serve the church. Hebrews 1.14 And heavenly angels are never said to need to repent, as some of the leaders in churches are called to do in Revelation 2 and 3. So Jesus identifies a primarily responsible single individual Single man in each church. Now, the New Testament certainly points to a plurality, a group of elders, and that's true. But there is a weight and there is a gravity given to those men who pursue nothing else but the gospel ministry. They bear a load, they bear a responsibility that is qualitatively different. And so there's a particular burden, there's a particular gravity given to the one who gives up any other life for the sake of the gospel. Let me put it to you this way. The most glorious thing that I get to do every week is to stand in this pulpit. And the most terrifying thing that I get to do in any given week is to stand in this pulpit. Not because I'm afraid of of speaking in public, but because I know there's no way I'm going to get it exactly perfect every time. It can't happen. And I fully expect, according to James 3, verse 1, to go to heaven and have the Lord pull me aside and say, we're, we're going to just go through the list of all of your errors. Get comfortable. There is a load. There is a burden. In fact, we see this weightiness of responsibility given in another charge to Timothy by Paul, the charge that is the gold standard of the gospel ministry. You don't have to turn there. Just listen. 2 Timothy 4 verse 1. Paul says, I charge you. And this is a much stronger word than even our text here in 1 Timothy. It's a word that means I'm warning you. This is a solemn testimony. It literally means bear witness. I'm making you swear to something. And Paul weighs it down even further. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead. And by his appearing in his kingdom, he's saying, I'm making you swear on the presence of God, on the presence of Christ, on the one who will be at judgment day by his very second coming, by his kingdom. And what is the charge? Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. What does that mean? Preach when the timing is good to preach and preach when the timing is bad to preach. Just don't stop. Preach when people want to listen and preach when nobody's listening. Now, this charge to Timothy back here in our text in 1 Timothy 1.18, referring back to the specific command in verse 3, is to do some house cleaning in the church. And we should remember, this is almost certainly not just one big church gathering in Ephesus. Clearly, the elders knew one another. They worked alongside each other. Acts chapter 20 makes this clear. But the most likely scenario is that Timothy is trying to minister as a representative of the Apostle Paul to many different church gatherings in and around Ephesus. Homes in Ephesus could be large enough to accommodate many dozens or even a couple of hundred people. So these are not necessarily just little home churches with three couples, a couple of kids and a dog. These are bigger gatherings. The elders would have all been expected to be qualified. By the way, 1 Timothy 3 Paul is going to insist that they all be re-qualified. These were men who were skilled and capable in the scriptures, at least they're supposed to be. 
And the most likely scenario is very simple, that there is one elder presiding over each individual gathering. And yet, in some way, shape, or form, the whole church would have gathered together as well. Acts 20, again, the elders of Ephesus knew each other. They're treated as a single unified council of men. And so Timothy has before him a very difficult task. First of all, he has to correct many of the elders. That's who he's correcting. And if they're not correctable, then they're to be treated as Alexander and Hymenaeus in the next couple of verses. First Timothy 5, they're to be publicly rebuked and most likely right before being shown the door. Timothy also had the task of showing up to these gatherings to correct the false teaching that was spreading. I've had to do that one time in my ministry to show up to a small group, thankfully not here at Grace Bible Church, but I've had to show up to a small group where I knew that what was being taught was heretical and I had to show up and in a man's own home say respectfully, it's your house, but you are not going to teach these people. Stand down. It's a hard thing to do and Timothy was doing this. That was like his weekly routine. No wonder Timothy was having health problems and stomach aches. 1 Timothy 5.23, Paul tells Timothy, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Now you wonder, why is that stuck in there? I'll tell you why. Before that verse, Paul tells Timothy, be careful not to bring unqualified men into leadership. And right after that verse, he warns Timothy that some people will fool him for a long time and their besetting sins will only come out later after you've made them elders. No wonder he has a stomach ache. Listen, for you young men considering the life and the ministry of the gospel, may the Lord speed you toward this worthy calling. There is nothing more important. But don't have any illusions. It is the most serious work on earth. Souls hang in the balance. When the Bible college or seminary recruiters tell you of the glorious life of the pastor, don't believe them. Don't believe them. Most of your work is hidden and none of it will, most of it will be seen except in eternity. But for Timothy, this was his life, this was his passion, his driving mandate. He had no other life, no other career. He was to preach in season and out. First element of the gospel ministry, it is a mandate. Second element, it is a trust. It is a trust. Paul says this charge, I entrust to you, Timothy, my child. This verb entrust is a present middle, middle indicative. What does that mean? Well, first of all, it's a present verb, means it's current, it's right now. It's a middle verb, which means it's, it's personal to Paul. When the middle voice is used, it generally means that the person using it is involved somehow. Paul is personally engaged with this action. It's as if he's personally handing Timothy something that's very, very precious to him. Not easily let go. This verb means to place something before someone, but it's often used in a legal context in the ancient times, to leave something in another's care. Not, not just something unvaluable, but something incredibly valuable. And now that person who has received this trust is fully responsible, fully culpable. It's not something done easily or thoughtlessly. Let me put it to you this way. For you fathers of daughters, it's about the same thing as handing your daughter over to a young man at her wedding. It's not done easily, is it? At the end of this letter, Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.20, O Timothy, guard the, the deposit entrusted to you. 2 Timothy 1.14, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. The gospel ministry is a guardianship. What's motivating Paul to lay this heavy weight on Timothy? What do you think? You know, the manager of the Jiffy Lube oil change center. He doesn't go to the pit. You know that pit where the, the lowest man on the totem pole is down there. He doesn't go and holler down the pit. He doesn't say, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. And by his appearing in his kingdom, change this oil. That's silly. Why doesn't he do that? Because Paul is concerned for the most important thing. That is the bride of Christ, the church. Paul told the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty eight, and apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. The bride of Christ is to be the focus of Timothy's shepherding. The bride is paramount. She's all important. She needs preaching. She needs attention. She needs affection. She needs love. 
She needs shepherding. And what's the goal? Remember verse 5? The aim of our charge is love. The goal of instruction is love. And what does that mean? Well, that means shepherding. It means knowing the sheep of the flock. Dr. Charles Jefferson, pastor of Broadway Tabernacle in New York City for over 40 years, in 1912, he wrote a book which is really classic on pastoral ministry, and it's called The Minister as Shepherd. It's rich in wisdom, especially in cultivating a shepherd's heart. And he says, quote, Many a young man has been sorely troubled on entering his first church because of his feeble love for people. On examining his heart, he has found it cold and dead. There seems to be no point of contact between him and them. In other words, there's no communication. There's no understanding of what's happening in their, in their lives. Because as long as you don't understand what's happening in the lives of your people, then you can't really have empathy. You can't have sympathy. But if you do understand, then you can. Dr. Timothy Whitmer, preaching pastor of Crossroads Community Church in Pennsylvania for 28 years, the founder of the Shepherds Institute, the professor of practical theology at Westminster Theological Seminary. He's the author in the last decade of really one of the gold standard books on shepherding Christ's church. It's called The Shepherd Leader, Achieving Effective Shepherding in Your Church. And in his chapter called Shepherds Know the Sheep, he makes not only an outstanding case for church membership, which he calls macro-knowing, knowing the strengths and the weaknesses of the church as a whole, but he also writes extensively about what he calls micro-knowing of the sheep, knowing the members. And this is, the, as much as is possible, the intentional knowledge of every individual member of the congregation, hearing them. And he makes his case exegetically from Scripture for micro-knowing based on his study of 1 Peter 5, 3, that elders are, quote, not domineering over those in your charge. Now, I want to focus on this for a minute because he does a great job, Whitmer does on this. Those in your charge, this is the Greek word kleros, which basically means an allotment, an allowance. It's used in this case to mean an allotment of the members of the church. In other words, it's not just that the elders of the church are generally overseeing the whole congregation. That's not the New Testament model in view here. The elders aren't just merely a decision-making body. That's a wrong view of eldership. The kleros model, the allotment model, is that each elder is responsible to shepherd a certain number of members. That each member can say, I have my own shepherd. Whitmer's point is that if you don't know the sheep, the elder will domineer them. He will become a manager, not a shepherd. And that's not what elders are to be. Whitmer goes on to say, quote, The elders must not merely know the names of those members who are his sheep, but must strive to know them personally. And if he doesn't know them, he should make it his business to do so. Writing on the very same topic, Dr. David Dixon in his book, The Elder and His Work, writes, He, that is the shepherd, must be acquainted with them all, old and young, their history, their occupations, their habits, their ways of thinking. They and their children should be their personal friends so that they can naturally turn to him as one on whom they can depend as a kind and sympathizing friend and a faithful counselor. This is, by the way, why one of the qualifications of an elder in 1 Timothy 3, verse 2, is the quality of hospitality. Hospitality. Now, to be hospitable has been commonly applied to mean, well, the elder, the pastor, has people into his home. That's a valid application. That's not what the word means, though. The more precise meaning of the word means a friend to strangers, welcoming those that he doesn't know, that are not known. Philo of Alexandria, in his writings on Abraham, used the same word to describe Abraham as a friend towards strangers. The shepherd of Hermas, a Christian allegory written in the second century, described the hospitality of the shepherds of the church as being lived out in two ways. They took into their home traveling preachers, and also they made certain the needy and the widows in the church were looked after. In other words, the idea of hospitable, of being of giving hospitality is saturated in the thought of meaningful and loving and gracious and generous ministry to those you do not know well, 
those strangers who now become friends. And this means taking time to know them. This is something that every elder should look in the mirror and say, who are the people I am close to? Who are the ones I know so well that I can pick up their story? Who are the ones I know so well that I know right where they are in this particular situation? I know their triumphs. I know their failures. I know their hurts. I know their pains. Who are the ones that I'm that close to and they know they can pick up the phone and call me? Who are they? Every elder should ask himself that. So why is shepherding the flock of God such a trust, something that's not easily given? Well, here's the Lord Jesus' view of the church, his view of you. In Ephesians 5, 25, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Can I put it this way? The Lord Jesus Christ is to whom you belong, and he does not give out that trust easily, nor should he. Verse 29 of Ephesians 5 says that Christ nourishes and cherishes the church. And how does he do that? How has the Lord Jesus Christ nourished the church? How has he cherished the church? Ephesians 4.11, he gave shepherds. He gave shepherds. The shepherds, poimenos, it's often translated pastors. It's the same Greek word used, by the way, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, to translate Psalm 23, 1, the Lord is my shepherd. It can be translated, the Lord is my pastor. Charles Jefferson, again, in his book, The Minister of Shepherd, writes, it would help us to say occasionally, the Lord is my pastor, It would lift the word pastor to higher dignity and pour into it more heavenly meaning. It would chasten and strengthen every minister of Christ if now and then he would say to himself, I am a shepherd. My work is the herding and the feeding of the sheep. The gospel ministry is a trust. There's a third element of the gospel ministry. It is a calling. It is a calling. The charge of the gospel ministry given to Timothy in verse 18 is in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. Now, we've talked about this before, but during the time of the early church, the spiritual gift of prophecy of hearing directly from the Lord was still in operation. Now that we have a completed Bible, that gift is no longer necessary. We have heard from the Lord, and in fact, the very end of the Bible warns us against adding to the Bible Those miraculous gifts are no longer necessary. They've left us, 1 Corinthians 13, 8. As for prophecies, they will pass away. But in Timothy's time, other already qualified men have heard from the Lord about Timothy in ways that we're not really told, not necessarily some sort of direct voice. It might just be a very clear, certain knowledge. In either case, these already qualified men, the council of elders, were certain of his gifting, We should also note that Timothy has proven himself as well-trained. He learned the word of God from a child, from childhood, 2 Timothy 3.15. He is faithful as a very young man. He's already been preaching in multiple cities. Acts 16 verse 2 tells us that. But these prophecies over Timothy are very, very important because ultimately it was the Holy Spirit giving Timothy his marching orders, not men. Men are the agents But never should a minister of the gospel say, these men called me into the ministry. It's always, God has called me into the ministry. Men are the tools of God used to observe and confirm and support that calling. By the way, there are three groups of responsible responsible for filling the pulpits of Christ's church. The first group is you. You're responsible for recognizing gifted young men And by the way, the less a local church knows what to expect from their shepherds, the less they'll recognize one when they see one. The second group is already qualified men. Other pastors, other elders are to bring others alongside. And the third group that are responsible for filling the pulpits of the world are those men themselves to recognize their gifting, their yearning to shepherd God's people, their love for the word and for the study of God's word. But what we have here is an early church example of the prophetic call to gospel ministry. And it's reflected today in the process of training, of preparation, of ordination. 
Have you ever noticed that there is no heavenly call to any other occupation, any other vocation? God has called all men to support their families financially. God has called all married women to make their home their primary priority. But there's no prophetic call to any other profession. Why is that? Because the gospel ministry and the gospel ministry alone is the ministry that God uses to save souls from damnation and hell and the hematures and grows the flock of God to Christ-likeness. There's a statistic that gospel ministers like to remember when it comes to the gospel ministry. It's a very clear statistic. And that is that 100% of people are going to die. 100%. Every one of you, there will be a day where you are no longer on this earth. And so the question for the gospel minister is, with what sort of commitment, what sort of call will you use to bring people to faith There's a weighty view of gospel ministry. It's healthy. It's right for the church because your view of the gospel ministry, your view of the men who are to occupy the pulpits of the church, it's the compass that directs you to a right view of the church every time. A high view of God, high view of Scripture, high view of the church. Let me give you one more element of the gospel ministry. This is kind of a surprising one. We've looked at the mandate, the trust, it's a calling But the surprising element of the gospel ministry is that it is a battle. It's a battle. I've been to a shepherd's conference a dozen times down south, and I get to know all these pastors, and not to make fun of them, but none of them look like soldiers. These are men who don't seem like they're they're warriors. But it is a battle. Paul says to Timothy that by them, the prophecies, his calling to ministry, you may wage the good warfare, holding faith in the good conscience. When Paul says that waging the good warfare includes holding faith in the good conscience, this is very simply a contrast to the men, the elders, he's about to denounce in verse 20, Hymenaeus and Alexander. Hymenaeus and Alexander, they lost their focus. They veered from the true role of the shepherd. They stopped shepherding. They veered from the biblical gospel They veered from the care, the love, the concern that they were to have for the church. Timothy was to be strengthened in this battle. Paul says that by them, the prophecies made of him, is calling to ministry, you may wage the good warfare. Now, the Greek word order and the verb form is important here. Here's the word order. In order that you might fight by them, the prophecies, the good fight. This is very important because... We can already hear the echoes of the Apostle Paul telling Timothy in his next letter in 2 Timothy 4, 7. Paul saying, I have fought the what? Good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Paul's telling Timothy that his calling to the ministry is part of what strengthens him. Listen, for all of you, one of the best things that you can pray for all the pastors that you know, not just our church, but all the ones that you know, pray that they would remember their calling. John MacArthur has said on more than one occasion, digging ditches has looked really good. Timothy is to wage the good warfare. It's very interesting that the several times that Paul uses the warfare metaphor, he's speaking of the gospel ministry. We've already seen 2 Timothy 2, verse 3, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ. That's Timothy as a minister of the gospel. Paul told the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 10, We are not waging war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. He goes on to say, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Now, I hate to blow your interpretation of a verse that's taken out of the context about 100% of the time. This verse about taking every thought captive is not saying, I need to think good thoughts right now. I'm going to take every thought captive. God bless you if you pray that prayer. God will answer that prayer. That's not what that text is talking about. In the context of 2 Corinthians 10, Paul and his company of ministers, as ministers of the gospel, his gospel defense to the church at Corinth who have begun to disrespect his calling as a minister, he he says, we're not waging warfare according to things you can see And he uses the metaphor of a prisoner of war. We're taking every thought captive. How? By destroying untruth by preaching the truth. That's what it means to take every thought captive. So honestly, 
It's not you taking your own thought captives. It's me taking your thoughts captive and taking an unbiblical thought and hauling it off to prison so that it might be replaced with truth. Again, the warfare model. Now, just thinking as human beings, it seems counterintuitive to think of shepherding Christ's church as warfare. You see pastors and ministers on TV and in the movies as they're portrayed in dramatic portrayals. They're, they're never good looking, first of all. I hate that. And they're always just kind of namby-pamby guys who have nothing to do. Where are they always in the movies? They're always seated in a pew somewhere, just sitting there contemplating something. They're shown as wimps. It's not what Paul says. He says you're a soldier. What were some of the battles that Timothy was fighting? Timothy was in a church nightmare. He's fighting these battles. Unqualified men who don't know what they don't know. He's fighting the battle of men who are reading into Scripture and using pet theological subjects to emphasize only one aspect of a truth. He's fighting the battle of lack of skill and rightly dividing the word that some of the men were suffering from. 1 Timothy 1.7 He's fighting the battle of divisions in the church based on receiving mixed messages from different leaders. And of course, he's fighting the battle of living in a culture which denigrated, demeaned Christianity, and Timothy would eventually lose his life to this culture when he made a stand as a very old man against a pagan religious festival. By the way, in the tradition that tells us that story, a very strong tradition, there is no mention of his church standing with him. He stood alone. And because ministry involves the aspect of spiritual warfare, which is waged with truth, with determination, with a willingness to stand alone if necessary, at times we see the Apostle Paul show a fiery passion to defend the truth and, by the way, to defend his own sheep from their own naivete, their own naive ways of thinking. In the closing section of 2 Corinthians, particularly the last four chapters, Paul's demeanor makes this drastic shift from the gentle, encouraging, shepherding, loving, mild tones that he's had. John MacArthur, in his book, Called to Lead, points this out, quote, Paul became firm and militant. He included several pointed rebukes addressed directly and specifically to naive and disobedient people in the Corinthian church who had gullibly jumped on the false teacher's bandwagon He saved his harshest reproofs of all for the end. Listen to these. These are scathing. 2 Corinthians 11.4. If you like sarcasm, you're going to love this. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. How about this sarcasm? 2 Corinthians 11, verse 19. For you gladly bear with fools, being so wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you or devours you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or strikes you in the face. In other words, you're bearing it when someone blindly makes you follow a new spiritual authority. In fact, the false teachers in the Corinthian church were denigrating Paul and boasting of themselves instead. And this forced Paul's hand. It made him do something he didn't want to do, something he thought was foolish, and that was to defend his own ministry. He considered it foolish. In 2 Corinthians 12, 11, he says, I have been a fool. You forced me to it. I ought to have been commended by you. And how's this for chutzpah? Just a few chapters earlier. Paul spent considerable time asking them for money for the Jerusalem collection, thus proving that the offering should be taken before the sermon. (laughs) But even in his rebuke, even in the warfare against the, the horrible things that had infiltrated the church, listen to Paul's pastoral heart. 2 Corinthians 12, 14. Here for the third time I'm ready to come to you. I, I will not be a burden, for I will not seek what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save it for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. And he says, if I love you more, am I to be loved less? You know what he just said? He said, I'll love you more. I'll love you more. I will spend my life for you. The gospel ministry is a spiritual battle of epic proportions because souls hang in the balance and the spiritual health of the church hangs in the balance. 
This is why we must gather because the spiritual health of the church is infused with health and joy by our gathering. And so how does the gospel minister fight that battle? It's what we've already said, what Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 4. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Listen, what a glorious partnership between the shepherds of the church and the sheep that we have. That together we can fulfill steadfast ministry by means of the preached word and discipleship and by means of your faithfulness, your service, your obedience to Christ. We don't have very many details about the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 19, we get a couple details. The church is there, Christ is there. It's about all we know. No menus. We don't know what's being served. We don't know how long it lasts. Theologians differ between an hour and a thousand years. But what we do know is that you're there. Christ is there. There's a glorious reunion of not only the saved and the Savior, but we do know this. To introduce the beginning of the marriage supper of the Lamb, a voice like the roar of many waters cries out in Revelation 19.6, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Grace Bible Church, are you ready? Are you ready? Let's pray. Our Father, the steadfast ministry flows from the calling to ministry to your shepherds who are then responsible for the sheep, responsible to teach them, to lead them, to correct them even, to grow them up in the faith. And we always go back, Lord, to our, our favorite verse at Grace Bible Church, Colossians 1.28, Him we proclaim that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Lord, we live in difficult times and yet we see that the church of Jesus Christ is to be light, is to be salt, that the assembled body of believers is the means by which the gospel goes forth and that the world that is dying would see a Savior that could give them life. Lord, I pray for a man or a woman, a boy or a girl here today who has not received the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, who has not repented of his sins, who has not come to humbly bow the knee at the cross. I pray that this would be the day that the Holy Spirit would regenerate and give them the new birth so that they might have faith in Jesus Christ and have their sins forgiven. Might this be that day. We thank you for the sobriety of the ministry of the gospel because it leads us, Lord, to a high view of our God, a high view of our Savior, Jesus Christ, a high view of the Spirit of God, and a high view of the church as we ought to have. Help us be faithful. Help us be steadfast in the work of the ministry. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.